Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Kirschman, along with co-host Andy Dolich, and excited for round number two with Ted Robinson, uh, version 2020. We had him back on uh, May 22nd, 2019. It's crazy to think that it's almost been a year since we had you on, Ted, with with Pat. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the current climate, and no one better to talk to than yourself in terms of uh, your experiences in the past uh, in, in the booth uh, with all these major events shifting uh, in the calendar. So excited to talk to you about that and then anything else that we drum up. So Ted, welcome to the podcast again. Well, Jacob, I'm glad that I didn't scare you off too badly. So it's nice to be back and listen, <laughs> this time Dolich gets some swings at me. That's very nice. That's right. That's right. Um, Andy, why don't, you, why don't you take a swing or two? So uh, when... When I asked Jake about the last show, hey, I'm I'm kind of proud, uh, along with uh, Jake and Mr. Gallagher and Fred Clare, that you know we're in our we're in our second year, um, and third. Uh, third year. Holy, see, uh, started in started in 2018. Yeah, well, that's yeah. one of the problems in today's world. Like, I think today is <laughs> whatever day today is Friday. No, Thursday. It's a Thursday, I think, but how many of us have lost track of time and to think that a year's gone by and then again, how quickly COVID came upon us in the United States after, you know, it started around the other side of the world and the incredible role that sports has played in the ongoing debate in which we don't know when. We don't exactly know how, and perfect timing for today's event, uh, we've got the NFL draft, whether it started or is about to start, in a way that nobody ever thought it would be positioned um, in however many locations that they're doing, and just technologically alone, somebody should win some sort of award to pull this off over the next few days, but all the changes we've seen in such a short period of time, and Ted, I mean, let's start with Wimbledon and the Olympics and the sort of shock waves that that sent around the world. And then we can talk about some of the other major sports and the future to come. Well, okay, Andy and Jacob. First, let me just very quickly tell you that the, the episode that you all did together with the four of you together and Fred Clare, who I've never really met, but Fred talking about his personal journey of recent years was exceptional. It was just fantastic listening. So keep that one going. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you, the look, the NFL draft, Andy, I thought this, and you would have felt, I'm sure, the same way from the very first week of our shutdown. I thought the NFL draft would go on in some way, shape, or form, despite every football person in the league basically saying, please postpone the draft. Agreed. And the reason was, the reason was simple, it's TV programming. And right. you're trying to you're trying to get multi billion dollar deals in the next round from these partners. ESPN gets three desperately needed nights and days of live, you know, eyeball grabbing programming. Um, the Wimbledon experience to me was very. I learned a great deal about uh, where we're heading, and I don't think there's any purpose much in rehashing and and back uh, backseat you know, rear view mirror driving right now. There'll be plenty of time later on for that. But going ahead, uh, Wimbledon was was a little startling to me. But when I found out, Wimbledon did internal studies and they determined 
that they would need 5,000 people on site to conduct the championships closed, okay, with no spectators, 5,000 people. Now, probably 500 of that, so 10% of that number are the actual players, but that's a lot of people that you need to be on site outside of the players to conduct a closed championships. And they, this was the club's decision. They said, when we realized 5,000 people, how difficult that would be to guarantee putting this on with no spectators, it just seems senseless. And I, I have a feeling that's the template that uh, many of the major events are going to face in deciding how and when to come back is even if you do it closed, how many people do you need to guarantee safety? I'm glad you brought that up. So two points. I, I don't know if I remember this correctly, but did Wimbledon or does Wimbledon have some sort of forward thinking insurance policy based upon a force of nature event like this that gave them some level of protection that very few other leagues or events had, or did I just dream that? No, yes. That's what we learned, Andy. They had basically pandemic insurance and they're, as we, I think to the best of all of our knowledge, the only major sporting event that had the foresight. And, they've, and I believe they've had it for a decade and they paid, my understanding was it was a seven figure payment per year for that insurance, but they will reap way beyond that in the benefit now. And, and just to be sure people understand, this is not money that lines the pockets of already wealthy people. What the Lawn Tennis Association, which runs tennis in Britain, just as the USTA does in the United States, the LTA, much of their annual funding comes from Wimbledon. The, law, the All England Club gives a lot of their money to fund tennis in Britain, just as the USTA takes U.S. Open revenue, and much of that funnels down to grassroots tennis in the United States. So back to your question, yes, they had pandemic insurance, and as we understand, that's the only one. Ted, as, as you're thinking about some of these major events um, and fans and even next year, the experience is, is going to be certainly different, or at least we can say that right now, in that we don't know what, what the ability to sit next to one another or sit next to every other seat or not be able to be in a hospitality setting. I mean, how, how are some of these games – or matches or events going to change from a broadcasting perspective when there isn't that crowd atmosphere, there isn't uh, the vibe in the building or any of that sort of thing. It's just, you know, maybe two players, four players, a team of 10. I mean, what, what, what are, what are your perspectives in terms of actually announcing the event? Yeah, Jake, that's, that's a good question. And I think that's been bounced around in some form already by people. I very strongly very strongly come down on the side of competition is better than no competition. Events are better than no events. I would much rather as a broadcaster, be part of broadcasting an event without the atmosphere than not having the event at all. And I've heard varying opinions on that. So I acknowledge, but uh, yes, how it happens. I, I you know, look, Adam Silver has once again, proven himself to be the greatest leader in sport right now. Cause last week, after the last NBA owners conversation, he came out to the media and said, listen, we really don't have the data yet to make any decisions. And I don't know when we're going to have it. And thank God for his honesty, because we're still all in the same boat. We don't know. And 
with all of the impatience and frustrations and emotions and mental health challenges that the country's going to go through right now and in subsequent weeks, we still don't know. So uh, to, to get to the root of this, um, I have a feeling from the television world, I would not surprise me if something I've already done for the last 11 or 12 years becomes more standard in the ongoing near future, which is doing events remotely. So for example, I've worked for Tennis Channel since 2007, and we have done an awful lot of tennis events from a studio in Los Angeles. Tennis is fairly easy to do in that regard. It's a small court, it's two players, one ball, you can't really lose sight of anything. You just don't have the on-site atmosphere. Well, I have a feeling, for example, if the French Open is played in late September in Paris, as is now scheduled to be done, if that can happen, it would surprise me if television said, look, we're just going to call it from Los Angeles. It's just safer. It's I would obviously be more economical. We'd lose not being there for one year, the atmosphere, and the presentation would we'd be altered for one year. But it may be the safest way, and you still are able to safely do the event. That would not surprise me um, if, if there is far more of that when the Olympics do take place in Tokyo next summer. NBC has already done this for Olympic Games since Athens in 2004. Every Games part of it has been called stateside. It would not surprise me now if that equation tilts heavily to the stateside by next I want to go back. I want to go back to what well, you were you talking about before, Ted, on the number of people necessary for Wimbledon to occur, right? You said 5,000? Yeah, that's, yeah. What the, that's what the club has so, so I'm taking I've their- done some research, and in the big four sports, for a you know, fan-infused game, 3,200 for an NFL game, um, about 1,100 for a baseball game of above 25,000, and about 900 for hockey and the NBA. Now, what we've seen in society is, quote, people that we didn't maybe pay a lot of attention to uh, in terms of transportation, stocking, and roll it into sports, concession, um, security, ticket takers, janitorial, etc. Those people have, many of them have gone through traumatic events in their life, like not having income. And in speaking to one or two stadium gurus, they say, as we come back on a slow roll, which many people believe is going to be the way, how many medical type people do I have to hire to make sure that people coming into the event feel safe? And, and this one person who spent his whole life in the business said, you know, I... A, I don't know how many, and B, I don't know where I'm going to get these people from because of what they're in the middle of. Um, And so just the complexity of that, from getting in your car to go to an event, get out, go to the venue, and do all the things, hey, let's go to the bathroom. What? I'm not going to the bathroom. Or get on the line for that bratwurst. Yeah, it only was going to take four and a half hours for me to get my bratwurst. What's that going to be like? Uh, yeah, Andy, you know, we've, I think we've touched on this before in our conversations. But, you know, for example, you go to the Olympic Games, you wear a credential around your neck and you don't go any place at the Olympic Games without the credential hanging off a lanyard. 
around your neck. And I think that's going to be when, when, when the collective sports return, we're all going to have one of those and it's going to have a little uh, hologram or a badge on it that denotes that we're safe. And how that's done, the implementation of that is way over my head, obviously. But I can't fathom how we're going to be able to do anything collectively until that happens. The fascinating part of all this, and I, look, I live, as you all know, a lot in the tennis world. And I think tennis has a massive challenge ahead of it in its return because it is, a, it is the most global sport outside of the Olympic Games. Tennis players, tennis coaches, trainers, physios, umpires, administrators come from every continent on the planet. So getting that organized safely is a massive challenge. Now, it's always going to be about the health and safety of a human life, because that's what we're talking about here. So I was just talking to a well-respected baseball person this morning named Fred Clare. Maybe we remember Fred Clare. (laughs) And And we were talking about all the people, the equipment managers, the locker room people, all of those that deal directly with the team, you know, the, what is that like? You know, how important are those people to bringing these entities back? Just like, you know, the Wimbledon locker room has X number of people and the players, coaches and, and management and all that, how complicated it is, especially as you say, because these players are coming from every location around the world. Um, holy moly. Well, you know, something else has happened this week, guys, that I think is really interesting, and I don't know how this will play out in other sports, but tennis has been the first, at least that I'm aware of, where the players, because, again, tennis, everybody's an independent contractor, and thus the top tier are very safe right now, but beyond the top tier, and the top tier isn't very deep, beyond that, a lot of people, I, I think in tennis, a lot of professional tennis players by June or July are going to have to think about quitting the sport and finding something else, some other way to make a living. Well, the tennis players, the tours have now agreed to plans where basically the top people are going to pitch into a fund to subsidize the lower tier. In essence, the major leaguers are going to subsidize the double and triple A people that are fighting their way. That's great. It's a simplified version, but, but it's, it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenally, a phenomenal compliment to professional tennis where they're in essence taking care of their own. And I'm going to be interested to see how, if that translates into any other sport as we go along. Yeah. And I talked to a team executive yesterday and they haven't furloughed people yet. They've taken some salary reductions throughout the organization. They're talking about possible reductions. And this executive said, Hey, you've been through a bunch of labor interruptions that lasted for months. What would you do? And I said, well, Uh, To your tennis example, Ted, you could convince some of the people that are getting paid, get paid less, put the money into a fund so that nobody's furloughed or they have their jobs for at least another two or three months in maybe a return to some level of normalcy so they don't lose that kind of income. And, you know, you're seeing an incredible amount of selflessness in the world, but we also live in a selfish world. This is the time that, you know, we can vote yay or nay on what individuals and institutions yeah. are doing. Uh, Andy, you lived through it too. And I, uh, the, the, the only thing that to me is, has any remote resemblance to this period of time was the 
94-95 baseball uh, destruction, which lasted almost nine months from August through the following April. And I know at least two organizations, and uh, I did not work for one of them at the time. I worked for one that had a massive layoff, which was unfortunate. But I know of two others where the employees got together and made a pitch to ownership to say, in essence, we'll work for three quarters pay. We'll work four weeks for three weeks pay if you keep everybody on. And this, these two organizations did. They agreed. And there were zero layoffs. In essence, you know, basically you're the math is everyone took, takes a 25% uh, pay cut, but it, it saved everybody's jobs. And I think that yeah. was a wonderful example of employees, you know, in, in, in the absence of the ownership, just saying, look, we'll pitch in and do it, which didn't happen. The employees got together and said, look, let's save each other. And I thought that uh, 25 years ago, and I still remember those examples vividly. Well, the human nature of all this, you talk about the sacrifices that everybody's making either – uh, doing it voluntarily or being told what their sacrifices are going to be when the organization comes back and people look at each other cross-eyed because, you know, somebody was on the right side of the line, somebody was on the other side of the line, and it takes you that much longer to get back to be a functioning organization. That's not something that many people are talking about, having gone through that. Ted, from the broadcasting side, I mean, mostly everyone's an independent contractor as well, right? Like, how is that affecting that part of the industry as you don't have any events currently to, to do anything? Uh, no, Jake, that's everybody who's an independent contractor in every field. Well, not every field, but most fields right now, be they Uber and Lyft drivers uh, all the way you know, in, into what we're talking about here. Um, if I go to... Uh, let's say if I went to uh, the French Open in May, as was supposed to happen for Tennis Channel, we'd probably have 125 uh, people there, 90% of whom were independent contractors. So those 90% of people are out of work, means they won't get paid for that. Uh, and that's one of the things, I mean, as, as Andy was talking about, running down that entire list of people that uh, help make a sporting event work, I think we have, to Andy's point, discovered what there's a different definition of essential right and for many many years the in labor disputes we're often told that the players are the essential people to the product and there's clearly a lot of truth to that but we're finding out that that definition stretches to a lot of others right we can't have these events as wimbledon said we can't have the events without a hundred and some odd people there to maintain the grass courts on a daily basis without 150 people to cater the food that everybody competing in the championships eats every day. Um, and these are all just as essential, quite frankly, right now as the players. And we can't start anything in sport without that entire essential uh, a, a group of people being taken care and, of. So, uh, yeah, so I, I would do, uh, could we do a show of hands, Jake, on this show? Oh no, we can't do that, can we? Darn, uh, but a show of hands. <laughs> You know, for those people that work in the front offices of pro teams or work in the athletic department's offices, the percentage of those people, let's say just on the business side, I'm not talking on the team side, the percentage of people that have contracts, I'm just guessing, I don't know, is probably less than 2% if it's that. So everyone else, I mean, directors, VPs, senior VPs, EVPs, um, associate ADs, 
they're, you know, employees without contracts. And in today's world, which is reality, is like, uh, okay, sorry to tell you this, but you got to go. And you have zero protection other than the essential nature of the place that you work and fairness. That's, I've spoken to some executives, you know, who make a fair amount of money and they're concerned because they got no protection if the boss comes in and says, sorry, you know, we're not going to play. We're not going to play for several more months. You got to go. I'll give you a call. Well, here, and, and Andy, Andy, does that, does that change how things then become done in the future? Right. I, like with everything that's going on, whether it's, you know, Ted, you mentioned the baseball strike back in 94, 95, that, that had to have changed things for the future. Right. There's opportunities to, when you look left, right, or straight ahead, or even behind you to where there's things that could be done differently. Is that, is that going to change anything? I'll let Ted go first and then I'll jump Ted? in. Well, if, well, is it going to change? Yeah. I mean, obviously I, I don't think there's anything I, I'm not, let's put it this way, Jake, I'm not expecting anything to be the same when, whenever I get a call to go back as an independent contractor who right now um, is, is, you know, and I, I certainly don't mean to position this as if uh, I need a telethon <laughs> to help, but and, and, and I'm, so I'm, but I'm saying it's, it's bizarre because you see 22 million unemployed people. And yeah, there's a lot of them I know, a lot of people I work with. We're all in the same boat because I have no idea when the next day that I will be working is uh, that sports continues. And here's the, here's the point that, that I was just going to jump in real quickly on Andy's point about teams. How many sports teams, professional sports teams in any league, are owned by people who have other business interests. I mean, I, I think a fair percentage, mm -hmm. I would guess, yep. Andy would know. Well, if the economy <laughs> continues as is, as is forecast and these owners' essential businesses, the businesses where they make profits, if those businesses suffer, how many of these owners are going to turn around and say, look, I can't subsidize this sports entity that doesn't make me any money. I, I, I think that's something that I've yet to hear a lot of conversation about, but that could be a massive shakeout as the 2020 decade goes in. If this, if we go into a two or three year recession, how many of these owners are getting out of sports? If I'm the marketing director or the CFO of an airline that has my name on a sports facility, I'm talking to somebody right away. Because <laughs> I, I got no, no Andy, I mean, that, that's a great in. point. Do you, do you have a, between the two of you guys, do you have a top three or top five list of things that you are kind of keeping your eye on, right? To your, to your point, Ted, like that hasn't necessarily been talked about as much, but what are some of those things that you think might come up down the road based on your Yeah, that was one, the one that's in the forefront of my mind, Jake, is just that about ownership situations. And gosh, none of us wants to see that happen. Um, there has been no shortage of people who have been willing to jump up and, pay as you know, the, the rate. I mean, when we see, and I, I'm sure you and you and Andy and Pat and Fred may have already talked about this, but I just saw the Forbes valuations again. And I think is, is every major league baseball team, but one valued at a billion dollars. Now, I believe that's, it's incredible. A billion dollars for, you know, the Oakland A's, I believe had a valuation of around that. So um, anyway, I, I, the, the ownership thing really jumps out to me. I think the presentation of sport, the amount of travel that will be, will be, will be, will be smart, will be tolerated, will be accepted. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking about 
for example, the guys, we're less than 24 months, believe it or not, from the 2022 Olympics, okay? We're now just 20 months as we speak from the next Winter Olympics, which are in Beijing, okay? So just, I mean, think about, we still have to get through Tokyo, but think about that for a second. How, how willing and able and ready is everybody going to be jumping up and down to jump to go to Beijing in February of 2022? And how interested is China in having all of us come? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a down the road question. But it isn't that far down the road. So those are the those are the bigger picture things. I look at who is going to be, or what is going to be, the group of science, medicine, and you know, good, bad, indifferent, together or not, governmental agency that gives American citizens the level of um, safety in their minds to bring a family to a high school game, college game, or a pro game, or an event like a golf tournament. That's what I'm looking for. And right now, you've got multiple voices. I won't say anything more than that. Number two, um, the fact that a number of minor league baseball teams, and this started before COVID, were sort of focused on going away. And now I think that's probably going to happen and to me is a major hit on the opposite side for baseball, a negative in terms of bringing it back. And the third is the whole realm of college football, big time college football coming back in a, in a fashion in the fall. It's been very quiet because people have focused on the NFL, but I go back to my example of the SEC or the Big 12 or the Pac-12, holy mackerel, you know, you're playing at the big house in Michigan with nobody there, yikes, or LSU-Bama, and, and then both for football uh, on the uh, pro side and the college side, you are exchanging bodily fluids on every single play. How the heck are you going to deal with the player safety in that circumstance? Yeah. I, I want to hear that. Well, I, I think uh, Jake and Andy, I'd say one of one thing I would do if I was Adam Silver or Roger Goodell, as soon as we get through the initial, you know, surge and, and things do get flattened a bit, I'm trying to hire Dr. Fauci. That's the first yeah. thing I'm doing. I mean, seriously, you, I mean, if I'm the NFL, I want Dr. Fauci to be my chief medical officer. I'm not kidding. I yeah, had, second yeah, part, no, I couldn't agree yeah. with you more. I had a discussion yeah. today with the FCFL guys, and I said, where are we at with the hiring of our medical panel? And we're going to do that, you know, because yeah. it's absolutely this, necessary. Yeah, and the, the second thing, you, and you, you guys could do an, an hour or two hours on this topic, but very quickly is um, the college – the whole model of college athletics, I think, is hanging right now on when and if college football can be played this fall or maybe winter. Um, I think the, the, the massive amount of revenue that colleges, that universities take in from football to, su to support most of their athletic departments, the amount of money that comes from student fees that is funneled from student fees at universities to support athletics, where is that going to come from? And of course, the word that many universities are starting to confront that they never in their lives thought they'd confront is refund. 
And if there's no fall camp, no fall classes, as you, Andy, you've said, a couple of UC schools have already said we're going to go online in the fall. Right. They're going to be there going to be a lot of refunds, and colleges don't like that word. Oh. And 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 the entire model of higher education, which of course includes athletics, college athletics, I think, is all hanging in the balance the rest of 2020. And I don't I don't I don't think I'm over dramatizing that. Absolutely not. And as we uh, head to the end, Jake, let's uh, guarantee Ted that he's on at least once a year, if not more than that, right? As we're moving forward. <laughs> um, and again, we uh, we lied or maybe didn't tell the truth about 30 minutes. And that's good. <laughs> always good there. Um, and Jake, one more question for Ted as we uh, roll on um, from Arizona to Northern California, yeah. from coast to coast, from sea to shining sea. Ted, as you're looking at some of these major events, and look, we know that the impact of sports and what it has on, on not only communities, local communities, but, but the world as a whole, what's the one thing you are looking forward to the most out of some of these bigger events, whether it's Olympics, Wimbledon, um, you know, other tournaments, et cetera, that you've worked in the past and what you think that will be able to do. Well, for and nobody in baseball is going to like me for saying this, but I have, I have a dream of sorts here. Uh, and it's rooted in my upbringing, which is actually uh, Andy and I grew up about five miles from each other. Uh, I, I have wondered out loud if the U S open tennis championships, which is the labor day window would be, the event, the major sporting event that comes back first in America. And there are people who tell me that's insane. I have heard that that's a hope that the U.S. Tennis Association is holding out, um, even though their indoor facility is right now being used as a, as a, as a basically a, an at, at hoc hospital for New York City. Uh, we're still four, almost four months away from that period of time. But what a moving moment it would be if New York City is able to safely bring back a the first major sporting event in the United States. So that's that is the that's the dream I've been holding out. 